together to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. We'll be looking this morning at the first half of chapter 2, beginning at verse 4 and ending at verse 17. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Genesis chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havalah, where there is gold. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would teach us from your word. That you would teach us more about ourselves. That you would teach us more about you. And that you would teach us more of how we relate to you, O Lord. For you are indeed the only true God. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Why do we learn about creation? We've been studying it for the past few weeks, but we're not the only people to study this issue of, of origins and the creation of the world. Why do we as people ask these kinds of questions? 
Why are we curious about our beginnings, about something that we can't watch, that we can't repeat? Well, I think it's because at our deepest, most fundamental level, we want to find our place in the world. We want to know where we fit in. And going back to the very beginning is a way to do this. Others do it in different ways. Some seek to find their place in the world through traveling to every different land of the world. Still others do the proverbial climb to the top of the mountain, hoping to find solutions there. Seeking wisdom from philosophers and and wise men. But in reality, if we are to find our place in the world, we must begin with our relationship with And that's what creation and this creation account is all about. It's about the relationship that we as humans, we as people have with the Creator, with the God of the universe. And this morning we're going to see in a very special way how that relationship was begun. It is the foundation of exactly who we are. What we are looking at this morning affects you today. The very reason that you may have woken up with a backache or a toothache or an itch that you couldn't scratch is because of this text. The very reason that you have conflict with yourself and with others is a result of this text. The reason that you love others and that others are served by you and you serve others is a part of this text. It is the foundation of what it means to be human. And so what we will be looking at this morning are two things broadly considered. First, we will consider the creation of man by God himself, the creation of man. And then secondly, we will see the covenant with man that God makes. God doesn't just create man. He enters into a covenant with him. And man is shaped by that. Forever. Well, let's begin then by looking at the creation of man in this second chapter, the fourth verse. Moses begins by saying, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heaven, or excuse me, the earth and the heavens. And then he begins to describe how there were no plants of a certain type and how God had not caused it to rain and then how God formed man out of the dust of the earth. And if we are not careful, we will begin to look at this. Perhaps even some of the younger among us have looked at this and wondered, what's happening here? God already made man and he rested besides. Why is he, why is he making man again? And, and this is often seen as being contradictory as being a second creation account that is different and contradictory from the first. It's often cited as a problem. This is a passage that those who seek to rebel against God and do not believe in the Lord will point to and say, well, you know, even your Bible here isn't right. It's been the cause of so much concern that a whole theory about how the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible, 
were written came about. In its final form in the early 20th century, it became known as the JEDP theory. Not very catchy, but it's done because supposedly there were at least four sources for writing the Pentateuch. There was a man who wrote after the covenant nature of God, and he was the Jehovah writer. And then there was someone who wrote about the majestic nature of God, and he was the Elohim writer. And then there was the Deuteronomy writer. And then there was the priestly writer. And all of these people put together a mishmash of this book. As the century went on, it became more complicated. There weren't just four. There were, of course, eight. And then 16. And then we don't know. But the one thing that all of these wise scholars said was some wonderful redactor. That's not his name. That's what he does. Some wonderful wise man with scotch tape and scissors put together this book that is a wonderful set of teachings. They forgot to do one thing. To explain why if someone is so brilliant that he can put together a poetic, wonderful set of teachings from dozens of resources, why is he not smart enough to leave out two contradictory creation accounts at the beginning? And of course the reason is, There are no dozens of contributors. This is no contradictory account. God is doing something very orderly. And we see it in verse 4. This is the beginning of a different focus of creation. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth. Now some of your translations might have, this is the story. This is the account. This is a formula. We see it throughout Genesis, if you have your Bibles with you, you can just turn briefly. You can go to chapter 5 and verse 1, and we will see this is the book of the generations of Adam. Turn a page or two, and at verse 9 of chapter 6, you will see these are the generations of Noah, another of our patriarchs. A few more pages in chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Again, in chapter 11, verse 27, these are the generations of Terah, the father of Abraham. Chapter 25, we see the generations of Isaac. In chapter 36, we see the generations of Esau. In chapter 37, we see the generations of Joseph. Now, when I do that deliberately over and over again, you can see what this formula does. It's how you instruct children to write and to outline You have headings. This is Joseph's story. And before Joseph's story, we have Esau's story. And before Esau's story, we have Isaac's story. And before Isaac's story, we have Abraham's story. This is a formula that says, pay attention now. I'm going to summarize something important. There is a focus here that God wants us to see in creation. We might loosely translate verse 4. Now this is the fuller development of the story of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And we even see this in the language. You'll notice that here at the end of verse 4, it is God making the earth and the heavens, as opposed to in chapter 1, verse 1, the heavens and the earth. It's an outline. God wants us to see something very specific. It's like a headline in a newspaper with the text that will follow. 
And this is not a strictly chronological account, but there is a theme that God wants us to see. It is included, it is encapsulated for a reason. God is moving from the story of creation as one of grand majesty and the entire cosmos to focusing in on man and his place. It's like the difference between getting in an airplane and flying and looking at the majestic Rocky Mountains and landing the plane, getting out, and going into a garden to view the beauty of the plants and the flowers and the intricacy of the insects. It's a different focus, but it's the same creation. Now, Moses and God want us to see man and his place in the universe because as we said before, the world and all of its creation was created for man. You don't need to find your place in the world. The world is your place. You don't need to worry if you have value. All of creation was created for you. All the trees, all the animals, all the stars, the sun, the moon, the greatness of all of the universe was created as a place where God might put you. That He might have a relationship with you. Not man generically considered. Not humanity. Not even Christian people. You. God will have a relationship with you. He already has one, we'll see in just a bit, here in this text. It's the nature of that relationship that is different. You can either relate to God as a loving Father, as one who gives you every good thing and has prepared a place for you, or you can relate to God as one you rebel against hate and seek to be free from. That is the difference. We are made for a relationship with God. And we know this because this account of creation gives us a description of the image of God in us. You remember in chapter 1, verse 26, it was said that God created man in His image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female. Do you wonder what that means to be created in the image of God? There are false theories that abound. We looked at some of those in past weeks. There are some people who believe that because this is true, God is a man, a white man, about six foot two or six foot four. Because, of course, if I want to know what God is like, I just simply look into a mirror and I project myself onto God. Now, in other cultures, it's, it's different. Some see man as simply being one, perhaps even the best, of the animals. There's really not that much that separates us from other animals. After all, don't some forms of monkeys have opposable thumbs? Are we that far removed from them? Can't you take a pig's lung and put it in a man's body in order to help him? Don't their hearts look like our hearts? Don't they breathe like we breathe, eat like we eat? After all, we're just like the animals. 
that kind of thinking that has caused men throughout history to treat other people like animals. Just this past week, you may have heard in the country of Syria, more than 300 Christians were slaughtered, including babies. Because someone in power felt it would control his grip on the country. And he could take it out on someone else. And after all, there was no intrinsic value in people. It's kind of like, if your horse is lame, shoot it. And don't worry about it anymore. There are others who think of man in a very different way, like some kind of supercomputer. And they're always seeking to find the magic talisman of artificial intelligence. How can we possibly make something, a machine, that will be just like man, and then we can make men and do with them what we wish? So it's very different, and yet it's the same. And every time we think we have gotten there, we realize that it's not quite there yet. The latest popular iteration of this is an application that goes on with a phone. That you can click a button and ask your phone, I can do this, I can ask my phone, will it be cold tomorrow? And it will say, let me think about that. No, not very cold. It'll be 55 tomorrow. In which I think, you're not from Houston, computer. You must be from Maine. Because 55 is cold. But I'm reminded that this is not a man when I do this and... It seems almost as often I get, I'm sorry, I can't help you with that now. And I wonder, what's the use here? But we, it's not just phones, it's supercomputers and banks of computers. And we try and find computers that can play chess and computers that can make decisions. And the the thing is, at its core, it is a way to find man as machine. There are others among us who view man as being the center of his senses. That the only thing that's important is what we can eat, drink, touch, feel, and smell. And their solution to life is, to finding your place in the world, is you should simply do whatever feels good. If it feels good, do it. This is a cliche that has been around not just for 20 or 30 years. It's been around since the beginning of man. Some think that man is not merely a sum of his senses, but he is about power and control. And the way we find our true humanity is by trying to get others to worship us. The reality of the situation is that God formed man. God, the Lord God, made man and placed him in Eden. This is the place we must begin because it drives all of our other thoughts about who we are and how we relate to others. We don't have to worry about being mechanized or big computers because we are individually created by God. We don't have to think that we are but an animal because we are created separately by God. We are more than the sum of our senses because God has created us with a mind. We are more than about power because God created us, we'll see in a minute, To serve. God formed man. Do you see this here in verse 7? Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
Now, there are a few things we need to understand about this. The first is that this is the first time that you will see in your Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the covenant name for God. It's the word that we understand transliterated as Jehovah or as Yahweh. It's the name that we get so much later in Exodus chapter 2 when God tells Moses, I am who I am. Before this point, it is God big considered. God, the God of power, Elohim. But now we are moving away from the cosmic perspective on God to the relational fellowship perspective on God. The same God that if we can use a human analogy, flung the stars from his fingers and dotted the skies. This same God stoops down to the earth and with his hands from dust forms man. This is the God who is ultimately transcendent, but ultimately imminent and present with us. Now, God forming man also reminds us of something else. That God has authority. This is very simple, isn't it? Every adult, or at least every adult with children, must acknowledge God as an authority. Because I know at some time in your life, one of your children has come up to you and said, why must I do this? And what's that last gasp answer you go with? When there's nothing else you can go to, you go to, because I'm your father. Or because I'm your mother. Right? That's where the buck stops. But what does that mean except for, I gave birth to you. I formed you. I have responsibility and authority over you. So it is with God. So if you have ever said those words, you must acknowledge that God is an authority in your life. It's how the world works. And so God has this authority over us. It also shows us that our bodies are important. There are many people that will try and convince you that we need to deny the body, that we need to move away from the physical, that really to be spiritual is to be non-physical, to be hermits living in a cave, or as one particularly egregious hermit did, to climb up on the top of a huge pole and live up on it for a year, to get away from food and drink and people and smells and everything that's distracting, to be spiritual. But this text tells us that God created us physically and that our bodies are important and that others' bodies are important as well. He formed us from the dust. Isn't it wonderful that God tells us how He formed us? Now, there is a play on words here. Everywhere that you see the word, the man, in our translation, do you know what the Hebrew word is for that? This is a really difficult one, so write it down. Adam. Everywhere that you see the man, it's Adam. The man's first name was Adam because Adam was the man. And Adam was formed from the dust of the ground. And this is also curious. The phrase in Hebrew, from the dust, is Adama. It's simply putting an A-H on the end of Adam. So Adam was Adama. 
There's a play on words here to remind us that we have humble beginnings. We come from the dust. It's like the potter working the clay. Now, dust is not nothing, right? All of you ladies who weekly or even perhaps daily have to dust all around your house know that dust is most definitely something. It has substance and needs to be removed. But it is also just about next to nothing, right? Nobody collects dust, at least not intentionally. They may collect baseball cards. They may collect you know, exotic animals. They may collect books. But nobody brings someone into the house and says, look at my marvelous dust collection. Look, this is 2010. <laughs> and over here is 2009. No one does that. So it's not nothing, but it's next to nothing. Now, and this is not gold dust either, which actually would have some value. As a matter of fact, Job, when he is describing how miserable he is, uses the term dust to refer to himself 16 times in the book of Job. So we must remember that God formed us, and he formed us lowly out of the dust. But he doesn't end there, does he? Man is not just formed from the dust Because he took the dust of the ground and he formed man and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So we're not just formed from dust, we're formed from the breath of God. So if dust shows us how lowly we are, this shows us how high we are in the order of creation. It is only man that becomes a living creature, a living being, because God breathed the breath of life into him. Now, this is significant when we remember that the word for breath is exactly the same as the word for spirit. When it speaks of God's spirit, it's the same word. It's the spirit of God. It is the breath of God. That is why we sing the hymn, Spirit of God, breathe fresh on me. It is a wind, it is a breath. And it's because of this that man knows that he is alive And then his life comes from God. Now the history of mankind is suppressing that knowledge. Perhaps even this morning, you are suppressing that knowledge. You've said to yourself, well I don't need to believe in these fairy tales about a creator God and playing in the dirt and giving mankind life. Everyone knows that man came from chimpanzees, which came from dogs, which came from birds, which came from lizards, which came from protoplasmic goop, which came from nothing. This text tells you you must repent of that. That you are formed specially and given life by God. And that man is different and important. It also reminds us that we are dependent on God because life is fragile, isn't it? One of the things that I like to do as a kid and and my children following in my footsteps, though they get to do it less often, is to stand outside when it's really cold and see your breath. Have you done that? You can only do it about four or five days a year here. But you do it and you see that kind of vapor as it floats and then it's gone in just a minute, right? James reminds us that that's what our life is like. It's but a mist. It's a vapor. Our bodies are falling apart, aren't they? We're reminded of that all the time. Life is very fragile. We are completely dependent upon God for every breath that we take. We're also dependent upon the Lord 
in that spiritual sense. Because, of course, Jesus Christ is a life-giving Spirit. Jesus Christ is the giver of the Spirit of God. You may remember in John chapter 20, when Jesus visits the disciples again, He breathes upon them and He says, Receive the Holy Spirit. We are living and alive because of what God has done. But there are also blessings that God has given to us in creation. Eden itself is a blessing. It is a real place. Eden is not Shangri-La. Eden is not Atlantis. Not vague places that we don't know if they ever existed or where they would be. You see, they are described in great detail here. There are rivers given names and lands and places. And all of these things would have a meaning to the people who are hearing these words for the very first time. Those people are the people of Israel. And they're in the middle of a desert. And listen to what they would hear about the place that God first gave man. It was a place not of dust dust and hunger and thirst. It was a place where there were rich rivers flowing, beauty, food that was good, trees that were pleasing to the eye, the most beautiful thing that you could imagine. Now, we get our word paradise from this. Now, if you can read this and see the descriptions and be in awe of it, imagine if you are sitting in the dirt with dusty sandals with sweat running down your face because you've been walking in the desert for years. Would make you think about what was lost, wouldn't it? Would make you think about what your relationship should be like with God. It's a place where water flows, where there is gold, where there are precious jewels. This is the place that God created for man. But our account here doesn't conclude just simply with a creation. After this wonderful description of Eden, we then begin begin to see the covenant with man. How God relates to man. In verse 15 it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so now we have here God entering into a special relationship with Adam. In Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, we do not have an account of God coming and speaking to Fido or to Cheetah or to Flipper. Nowhere else in creation does God condescend and come down and enter into relationship with His creation, but He does with man. And you need to remember here that God is not obligated to do this. You see, because it happened, we think, well, God owed it to Adam, He owed it to me. No, Adam was God's creation, just like Cheetah and Fido and Flipper. God did not need to enter into this special relationship of closeness with him. He was not obligated to make a garden to put Adam in. He had created a world that was very good, and yet he created a paradise within the very good to place Adam. 
He did not need to put Adam in charge of the garden. He did not need to give Adam the authority of naming the animals. He had no obligation to do any of this. This is all a gracious condescending of God. Now, this is important to remember because as we are tempted to shake our fist at God and say, why God tornadoes? Why pain? Why hurt? Why death? We must remember that God did not create the world that way. God created man in relationship with Him in paradise. And none of this is earned at all. Adam has not done a simple thing to earn this relationship with God. As a matter of fact, Adam is but moments old. The job that Adam gets is after God has condescended to enter into relationship with him. There was no sin for God to overcome. Before Adam had done anything, God condescended to enter into relationship with him. But that relationship had boundaries. They always do, don't they? Some of you perhaps have made this statement to your children. If you're going to live in my house, then you must whatever. Some of you have also set boundaries to a relationship. When you looked at the you were married and you promised to be faithful and true in sickness and in health, in wealth and in want. Right? There is a boundary to relationships. And God begins here by giving Adam a commission. It's not just that God condescends. He gives a commission here. Because man, at the very beginning, is not autonomous. Adam does not roll down the street and say, You know, I think I'd like to live there. I'm going to make it my place. I'll fix it up just right. No. Adam is placed in the garden by God. He is under God's authority. The the garden was created for him. And God then begins to give him directives. He is immediately under God's law and he gives him this commission that he is to work the garden and keep it. Now this text is a very, very powerful text. Because... It cuts out an enormous amount of our complaining. When is this happening? This is before the fall, isn't it? And what does God tell Adam to do before the fall? He tells him to work. So if you have in your mind the idea that work is bad that work is the result of the fall, that I shouldn't work, I don't need to work, oh, I wish I were Bill Gates' grandson, so I'd never have to work again in my life. God tells you that's not how I made you. You were made to work. Now, work is not easy, because, as we'll see in a few weeks, because of the fall, right? God did not intend work to be as hard as it is. He didn't intend work to be frustrating and things to break and weeds to grow up. But He did intend for us to work. That tells us that work is good. You need to hear that. Young people, 
especially young men, work is good. By working, you make your place in the world. You show that you're honoring the Lord. You provide for others and you build up His kingdom. Work is also God-ordained because God has given it to us. And work is actually God-like. Do you see what I mean? What did we see God doing in all of chapter 1? He worked. He took what was chaotic and He made it orderly. He took what was formed and He made it beautiful, useful. That is what we are called to do. To follow in His footsteps and to work. To bring order out of chaos. To take dominion over the world that God has given to us. And so we are to give ourselves to work and to stop complaining about it. This is important. God gives this commission to Adam to work and to keep. We might also translate it to serve and obey. There is a service to God aspect of what Adam is to do. He is to work and serve in God's context. He is to keep the garden. He is to protect it. He is to hear God's word and he is to obey. Elsewhere in the scripture, these two words, work and keep or serve and obey, are a summary of the worship that we are to give God. You see this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. For we are to serve the Lord our God and keep all His commandments. And you see, right from the very first, the culmination of all the purpose for Adam is to worship God. It's what Adam was created for. To serve and honor and bless God. This is the reason why the answer to the first question of the Shorter Catechism, the answer that everybody knows if they don't know any other one, the chief end of man is to glorify God and worship Him forever. This is what we are called to do. This is a commission that God has given to Adam. So in this covenant, God has given a commission to Adam. He is also condescended to enter into this relationship, but He gives Adam a very direct command. Look with me at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? Somehow I wish the Federal Registry were written by God. You see the reports. Every year they add, what is it, 10,000, 12,000 pages of regulations? You need to keep adding and, and explaining and pontificating on various rules, regulations, and laws. We can't just have laws. We have to have explanations of the laws. And then we have to have regulations regulating the explanations of the laws. Because if we didn't, we wouldn't know what to do. There's so many things that we're called to do. But God says, but one thing. Don't eat of this tree. Have you ever wondered why that's what God said? Why He didn't give the Ten Commandments? Why He didn't give the whole book of Deuteronomy? Why He didn't give a long laundry list of things? Perhaps, again, some of you children wish that your chore list or your things that you had to obey at home were simply but one thing. The reason why this is but one thing is because this is about the obedience and the authority of God. It's not about the thing. 
when mom and dad tell you to clean your room, it is because they actually want your room clean. They're concerned about that outcome. Now, if you don't, then they're also concerned about you putting off their authority. But here, God is not concerned about the thing. He is concerned about the authority. It is a very specific and positive ordinance. By positive, I mean there's no reason for Adam to obey here except to obey. Right? When your parents tell you, don't go play in the street, it's because there's a good reason. If you do, you might get hurt. There's a benefit to you to obeying. Here, it's a bare command because God wants to test Adam. And that test is in the culmination of the goal of Adam. It is interesting that this test was not random, but it was linked to man's purpose to serve and obey, to keep and to worship. It is also a sovereign command. You'll note that Adam does not say, okay, God, I'll meet you at 2 o'clock tomorrow and we can negotiate this. I can only eat, I would think I could only eat fruit of the tree above the four-foot line. Below the four-foot line would be okay. If we need to compromise, we'll compromise at three and a half. And we need to only have this color fruit, not that color fruit. No. You don't see any of that, do you? God speaks, Adam receives. Because God is the sovereign. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Why then do you bargain with God? God, I will obey you and submit to my husband if you work in his heart. Lord, I will not frustrate my children if you make them obedient to me. Lord, I will read your word this year more than I have if you will do this or that. You need to give up your if. You need to obey the Lord. Because he's your Lord. And because what he commands you is good and just and right. We can't play if games with God. He is the sovereign one. And he lets us know this. It's very emphatic. Do you notice the language here? That you shall surely, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but you don't eat of this tree, because if you do, you shall surely die. The Hebrew there is very emphatic. The way you say surely do something in Hebrew is you say the verb twice. You say eating, you will eat. Dying, you will die. God wants your attention here. He is giving you a command for a reason. He's being emphatic because there's an obligation here for Adam and for Adam and you. All of the blessings that God had gave, the Garden of Eden, the water, the authority, the blessing, all revolve around this commitment to obey God's word. All mankind is in this. Every man has this obligation. Every man owes God obedience. And I've got bad news for you. You don't obey him. I know that with my very soul. Because I don't either. I reject what God has told me to do. I leave undone things that He has commanded me to do. I am not deserving of any of the blessings that God has here in Genesis chapter 2. I deserve death and hell. Dying, I die. And so do you. Because we reject 
the authority of God, and we do not obey Him as He has commanded. So is there any hope then? There's no more Eden. You might have a nice garden out back, but it's not Eden, is it? You don't have four rivers. You don't scrape in the dirt and gold come up. Right? Is there any hope? We can't go back to creation. Remember we said it's unrepeatable. You cannot be Adam again. You can't say, God, I know Adam messed up, but put me in the garden. You could give me Eve or anybody else. And I trust me, Lord, I'll obey. You can't do that. It's not possible, but you can't. But there is hope. There's hope because your Bible just doesn't have Genesis. As we conclude here, turn with me to the book of Romans. Specifically, chapter 5. Paul finishes off Moses' story. He says in verse 12 of chapter 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, which we will look at in a few weeks in the fall, Adam's sin, and death through sin, dying you will die, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. The hope is found in that the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, come. You see, there's hope because although Adam disobeyed, Adam gave up Eden, Adam gave up paradise, he cast it off in rebellion, Jesus Christ obeyed. He lived a life of perfect obedience did everything the Father asked of Him. And He purchased paradise for those who would trust in Him. He's preparing a place for you today if you trust in Him. A place that makes Eden look like a junk lot. A place of glory, of mansions, of cities, of gold and silver and precious jewels in the very presence of God. Because of what Jesus has done. Do you know that? Do you trust that? Are you willing to give all of your life for that? Because you see, that's the purpose of life. That's the crowning of creation. It's that Jesus Christ became man and repurchased Eden for his own. I call upon you this morning not just to think on the old and creation, but to think on the new and to move to Jesus today. That in time to come, we might gather by the river. The river that feeds the city of God. And we might together worship our King, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are indeed the glorious God, the Creator of all. Lord, we do not deserve Your goodness, but we thank You that You have given to us the Lord Jesus, that we might know You, that we might serve You, that we might keep Your Word. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.